Lotto 649. It starts where other games stop. The weekly Lotto 649 jackpot begins at half a million and can just keep growing. For only a dollar, it's the biggest little game in town. Lotto 649, the biggest little game in town. 40 years ago this year, that commercial aired. 40 years ago this year, Lotto 649 made its debut uh, in this country, the first nationwide Canadian lottery game to allow players to choose their own numbers. It was a game changer. Uh, in fact, similar lotteries had spread it up across North America, and they really ushered in a whole new era of very low odds and very high prizes, which, of course, is was good news for those uh, selling the tickets. And that's what this next segment is all about. Um, when lottery came in, when government started selling, essentially promoting lotteries, uh, benefiting from lotteries, it was a real about face for them because they had long shunned gambling. It was one thing to profit from sin taxes on alcohol and cigarettes, but quite a different thing to actively promote lotteries at the same time as sort of warning people against, you know, play within your limit and so on. But they really did advertise the benefits, you know, the, the sort of get rich quick aspect of playing the lottery. Fast forward to 2022 and a fascinating new book, which we'll be talking about. Uh, and in the U.S., Americans spend more on lottery tickets every year than on cigarettes, coffee, or smartphones. They spend more on lottery tickets every year than on video streaming services, concert tickets, books, and movie tickets combined. One in four Americans buys a ticket once a month on average. One in two do so at least once a year. Avid players, much more than that. It's a near $100 billion enterprise in the U.S. alone. But is it an ethical one? Do the benefits outweigh the costs as both individuals get hooked on the promise of a big payday while the state becomes addicted to the easy revenues that it doesn't have to look for in other less popular areas such as raising taxes or cutting spending? All of those matters are covered in a recently released book called For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America by historian Jonathan Cohen. And uh, he scratches away at some of the myths sold alongside those tickets, myths that have existed for years. And Jonathan Cohen joins me now. Thanks so much for your time on this Friday. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, lotteries are hardly new. You point that out uh, very early on in the book. I mean, this goes back a very long time, but they were, uh, governments at least were, were averse to them for quite a long time. That's right. And and in some ways, just to, to close a circle on what you were saying, you know, they were first used as mechanisms of public finance for government, um, as far as I can tell, as early as the 15th century. Uh, in Belgium, some sources, I can't, I can't vouch for these entirely, think that the Great Wall of China uh, was funded through the use of a lottery. Uh, but what, really we're, what we're talking about in sort of the modern iteration goes back in both in Canada and in the United States uh, to around the 1960s when they sort of reemerged in a moment of economic crisis for both countries. Yeah, you mentioned that it was sort of a perfect storm of um, of falling revenue and increasing expenses for social safety nets and so on. And along comes uh, this idea that you could actually benefit from getting people to gamble, essentially. That's right. And, and in the United States, and I'm actually not as familiar with the Canadian case, but it was preceded in some in some many states uh, by bingo games uh, that you know churches, especially, would organize bingo games. There'd be a, a small tax levied, maybe you have to pay a licensing fee. Um, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that government would use gambling to profit, but it is a different thing entirely, as you alluded to in your opening comments, 
for the, the government to sponsor a game that's going to be sold at every convenience store in every corner of the country uh, or in every corner of the province. Uh, and and that's just, lotteries are different from other types of gambling. It's not a brick-and-mortar location. It's not a, you have to go to a specific spot. They are designed to appeal to as many people as possible in as many places as possible. Uh, and as a result, they've really sort of opened the door and opened the floodgates uh, for other types of gambling um, in the United States, in Canada, and across the, and across the world. Yeah, and now you've looked into this, uh, which was fascinating because I was I was surprised by how little research there was out there. Just considering what an incredible, incredibly lucrative business this is. But you pointed mm-hmm. out that there was a company in the states, at least behind the scenes, really doing a lot of the lobbying, a lot of the pushing here to try to get these uh, to try to get states to go ahead. Once uh, once New Hampshire, I guess New Hampshire, famously tax averse, as you put it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. went ahead with state lotteries back in in the late 60s, and many others followed suit. But there were forces at play behind the scenes that benefited from this as well. That's right. And and what, what the context here is that the sort of the first wave of lotteries, which are confined uh, in the northeastern part of the United States, they, they, they're they okay, but they're, they don't meet expectations. And that's partly because the expectations are so high uh, that they're going to solve state budget problems forever, and then people are never going to have to pay any taxes again. Um and, and those just aren't met. And as a result, the sort of appetite for lottery uh, declines. Uh, and legislators would love the money, but it's sort of not worth their time anymore. And here comes this company uh, called Scientific Games, uh, which introduced the first uh, scratch-off ticket uh, in Massachusetts in 1974. Um, and they uh, engaged in a process known as astroturfing, uh, where you create the illusion of grassroots support uh, to cover up a self-interested corporate campaign uh, where they write lottery laws, they, they pay signature gatherers to put initiative campaigns on the ballot, they pay for advertising, all this in the name of creating a, a proposal for voters that says the lottery equals education is the case in California, in Colorado, the lottery equals public parks. The vote for the lottery is not a vote for gambling, it's a vote for this cause. And that's what sort of restarts the spread of lotteries, uh, especially in the Western United States in the early 1980s. Yeah, I mean, it, you're right. When it comes to the politics of all this, um, opposing funding for, for education or funding for sports teams or fields, I mean, that's hard to do, right? That's not gambling. That's yeah. opposing something concrete and uh, supposedly beneficial. That's right. And, and that's still part of the game today. You know, I, I, the, the British Columbia Lottery, for example, feeds into the general fund, at least some, some percentage of it. So theoretically, the British Columbia Lottery can say, oh, we benefit police officers and schools and hospitals and, 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 and you know, plumbing, any number of services. Uh, but of course they do. It's just one of many sources that funds into the general fund. But it becomes a marketing campaign, a, a public relations effort uh, to frame the lottery uh, as, as you put it, as a social good, not just as a type of gambling. Now, when you looked at um, at the actual impact in the U.S., now, of course, the U.S. and Canada are different in some senses that way. Uh, many U.S. states are far more tax-averse than most Canadian provinces. But still, when you looked at just how much revenue, uh, sort of the dream, I mean, the, the dream that lottery ticket buyers are sold is the dream of getting rich quick. The dream that uh, that governments are sold is that this is going to, be a big source of revenue for you. How much revenue is it, really? I, I, I think you, you've touched on it exactly right, which is that it's easy to look down on lottery players as being poor and stupid and irrational and wishful. And I think the, the legislators who brought in lotteries are just as uh, uh, wishful and just as likely to believe in these magical uh, uh, hopes 
that a lottery is going to solve all of their financial problems. Um, and, and just to your question directly, uh, it, it, they, they, they do raise money. Um, you know, by, last, by my last accounting, I think it was $252 billion for states over the last 50 plus years. Um, but that ultimately comes down to like 2 to 3%. Uh, of state revenue for that time. So it seems like a lot of money on paper, and this is true in Canada as well, seems like a lot of money uh, when you just look at the raw dollars, when you compare it to the overall state or provincial budget, it really is just a fraction. One of the things I found fascinating, because we obviously, I mean, even on this show, everywhere, when it, when those mega bucks jackpots get up into the billion, into the billion mark, right. obviously we talk about it. I, I was fascinated about the, the section where you talk about the introduction of what we was 649 in Canada way back when. I was actually in the UK when they introduced theirs and was working in a hotel in a bar. And some of my co- staff members were seriously worried about the kind of divisions that would exist in their family when they won. When, not if, when, 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 when like you're not right. going to, you're not going to win. Trust me, you're not going to win. The odds are extreme. <laughs> uh, but the idea that suddenly we got sold on these very, very, very short, long odds and these very big prizes really was a huge change in the whole way that lotteries worked uh, right across the board. Yeah, well, and so this is uh, the, the, the games in, in the United States, um, they're called Powerball and Mega Millions are the, the, the games that are sold in all 45 lottery states. Um, but these are uh, a type of game known as Lotto uh, that was, you know, first introduced in New York uh, in, 19, in Massachusetts in 1978. Um, and I'll give credit uh, to Canada, you know, in every opportunity. Um, the Canadian uh, Interstate Lottery uh, offers the first interstate or interprovincial Lotto game. Uh, I right. believe it was Ontario and Quebec um, in 1982. And that sort of sets the stage for what will ultimately become Powerball and Mega Millions. And obviously, as you alluded to, to, to the rise of 649. And I think um, the, the, the rise of these mega games has totally warped the expectation uh, of what a jackpot uh, is, what it means to be wealthy. Um, I think a lot of lottery players who I talk to uh, in my research around the United States have this belief as a rational, and even though they know it doesn't make any sense, even though they know it would defy all probability, they have this belief that inevitably they're going to hit a jackpot and they don't want to waste it on a small win. They want to waste, they want, they want that, they want their hit to be on a big one. And that's why they, they, you know, they don't play when it's only a hundred million dollars. And I say only in quotation marks, they play when it's a billion dollars or most recently $2.4 billion a couple months ago here in the U S which seems totally crazy to me, but that is the the logic um, that they apply and why these mega games just keep getting more and more mega. Are we headed in the wrong direction, Jonathan? Where we sold a bill of goods about all this? I mean, really, what we have is the state promoting gambling. That's right. And, and to, to take an easy example, I mean, the it, it is in states' short-term economic best interest to sell cigarettes, right? States uh, in the United States make a there's a tax on cigarettes, so theoretically, it is in states' interest for you to buy more cigarettes uh, because they make money off the top. Um, but you would never, ever, in fact, you see the opposite. You would never, ever see a state advertising, hey, go pick up some Marlboros, go pick up another pack. Uh, in fact, right. you see the opposite. You see states advertising, telling people not to buy cigarettes. Uh, and this is exactly what you have with gambling, where you see where our states, there are entire agencies uh, and entire fi- and officials whose job it is to get more people to gamble. Uh, and that, to me, seems totally at odds. Uh, with what government is supposed to do and what basically every other branch of the government actually does try to do on a daily basis. 
we do know that governments here at least uh, obviously ask people to be aware, you know, play within their limits and so on. Uh, there yeah. is a, a recognition that there is issue, ethical issues here. Where is the damage? Like we understand with smoking, the damage is done in the long term to the healthcare system, right? Where is the damage done for lotteries? Yeah, well, it, so there are. It depends on the estimates. There are some uh, based on the the sort of formal clinical definition uh, of problem gambling. The estimates that as many as one percent of American adults uh, have what would be called a gambling problem uh, in, in some regard or on the spectrum uh, for for some degree of, of a gambling issue. Um, that that would be sort of one sort of hidden uh, major cause that that takes place really beneath the surface. Um, it's hard to see. It's hard to quantify. Um, but it's a lot of people whose lives are ruined or who, whose lives are affected. And they think they're the only ones uh, because so many people are sort of suffering in silence. Um, another issue uh, that another effect, excuse me, from from the rise of gambling, that's also, again, hard to quantify, hard to put your finger on. But it's exactly what you've alluded to already with the 649, with the odds uh, of just becoming so, so low and, and the prizes becoming so big. It just totally warped what people's sense of wealth is and how they think they're going to get out. Um, you know, they, they, so many people have sort of put their, put their chips uh, into this pot, and they really think the lottery is going to be their best way out. And as a result, I, I wonder if, they ha- if the lottery didn't exist, theoretically, you know, if those people might be willing to take other initiatives or think differently um, about what their future prospects are. That's a little bit of a, of a, of a wonky one, a little, a little squishy, um, but I think it's, it's useful to consider uh, what the effect is of so many people sort of putting all their hopes and dreams on, on the long odds of a jackpot. Yeah, it feels like a conversation we should at least be having. And you, of course, mentioned that that socioeconomically, uh, those who are, I mean, this is literally a tax, right? You're buying, you're giving yeah. money to the government with the hopes yeah. of winning something back. Um, but but that those who can least afford it are those who spend the most. That's right. So so the estimates are that as much as uh, 70 to 80 percent of total lottery sales uh, come from the top 20 to 30 percent of lottery players, and that is a group that in the United States uh, is disproportionately lower lower income, uh, less educated, and non-white than the average uh, than the average American and than the average lottery player. But as you mentioned, the alternatives for governments everywhere are cut services, cut, raise taxes, none of neither of which is popular, right? Or just yeah. keep on. You know, I, I, at the end of it, for the, for the same reason it became popular in the first place, is it does always feel like a bit of a victimless ethical breach when we when we sell lottery tickets to people and use it for revenue that's right so so lottery players and including the I'll include in this the one percent of folks with potential gambling problems uh especially if they're less educated and non-white and lower income they're sort of out of sight out of mind for legislators you know it's easy to just see the money coming in oh what was the the british columbia lottery sales this month oh great and not to, not to even think about the effect that that money is having on the people uh, who are contributing to it. Um, and the real question, uh, to, to take a counterfactual point of view, would be, oh, if the lottery didn't exist, surely these people would be gambling anyway. And, and that, that's sort of implied by this idea of a voluntary tax. Because no one's forcing you to p- play the lottery. People, you, know, you are forced to pay taxes, but you're not forced to buy a lottery ticket. And, and the, the response there is, that's right, the lottery, uh, some of these people would be gambling, absolutely. But there is no way... That, the United, that in the United States, the lottery would amount to almost $100 billion uh, in revenue every, every year. Or in Canada, uh, just over $9 billion in revenue every year 
without the cooperation of state governments and without the cooperation of major uh, corporations. So, yes, some amount of gambling is inevitable and voluntary, but when you get down to it, when, when you go to these places where I went for my research and you talk to some of these people, it, the, the, no one's forcing them to buy a ticket, but it sure doesn't feel voluntary. It sure doesn't feel like they have any other choice but to buy a ticket because they really don't see themselves as having a better way out. Yeah, and you've pointed this out in the book as well, that, that with the hollowing out of the middle class, so to speak, which is a much more squishy argument, we won't get into it tonight. I'll, I'll, well, we could talk about it another time. That, yeah, uh, that yeah, dreams, how many half-hour segments do you have? <laughs> exactly. The dreams of getting of getting rich, of you know, climbing the ladder have been, become much more... Um, much more difficult. So these are some of the only ways people only see this as a way out. Uh, Jonathan Cohen, thank you so much for your time. It's a fascinating topic. And uh, yeah, we'll try and talk about it again. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Uh, and good luck.